All right. Well, if you don't know me, I'm, I'm the pastor that doesn't come here very often. My name's Brent. They usually keep me at the other location, but uh, we've been rotating. And so, as Chad said, David's there. I get to be here. And we get to go through uh, another letter in the book of Revelation. We've been kind of going through the seven letters for the churches. And today we're going to be looking at the fifth letter to the church of Sardis. So you can open to Revelation chapter 3. You know, these letters are, are great because they provide us with an excellent opportunity just to kind of examine ourselves as a church, take our pulse, see where we are, and, um, and evaluate ourselves in light of what he's written to these churches. I like to kind of try to imagine um, the buzz that might have been going on in Asia Minor as, as word got out that these letters were, were coming. And I don't know if they all showed up at once, you know, if it was like, you know, they timed it out to where there was a knock on the door and everybody got theirs, or if they, they kind of went in the order of the churches, you know, I kind of like to think maybe that's how it went. So, you know, this church is the, the fifth one. I, I'm thinking they're, you know, Ephesus got theirs and Smyrna got theirs. You know, hey guys, we're, we're next. What, what's he going to say? What's this going to be like? I can imagine the anticipation. Is he going to be pleased? Is he going to be unhappy? Well, my guess is they thought that they were mostly going to hear good news because that's kind of the way I think most churches, you know, it's to be expected. I think every church thinks that what they're doing is is what they're supposed to be doing. And, and if, they, if they knew they were doing something wrong, they'd probably be working on fixing it. You can never imagine going to a church's website that said, you know, welcome to our church. Uh, we do everything wrong and we're okay with it. Uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think that would be a, something we would do. It, the truth is that sometimes we don't know that what we're doing is wrong because we have blind spots. We don't always see things accurately, but God's word tells the truth. And these letters kind of reveal the good the bad and the ugly. It's also important to realize that, that churches often measure their success differently than God does. I think Kevin DeYoung once pointed out that, that the standard for measuring church success is the triple B model. You guys familiar with that method? It's, it's buildings, budgets, and bodies. That's what we use. And that's how we decide, you know, if you've got lots of money in the bank, you've got a really nice facility that's kind of like an amusement park, and you've got, you know, enough people to fill a small stadium, you've arrived. You've done what you're supposed to do as a church. That's kind of how we think. And it's understandable that we think that way because these are, these are things that are measurable. You can, you can kind of quantify those things. It's, it's hard to measure church success apart from those things. And those things, the church can have all those things and still not be successful. That's the interesting thing. So Sardis was a church that looked successful. And they probably weren't prepared for what Jesus was going to say to them. Again, I kind of imagine they, they hear, hey, guys, the letter's arrived. Everybody gather around. Gather around. We're going to hear what he has to say. And there's this eager anticipation. And Jesus starts out by saying, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. And you can almost see the buzz in the room. Yeah, did you guys hear that? Yeah, we do, you know, high-fiving each other. Um, but that's not the end of the sentence. In fact, that's about the most positive thing they're going to hear Jesus say, and that's about to, to, to go, go away. Everything is going to kind of go downhill from there. In fact, Sardis and Laodicea are the only two churches that receive no words of commendation from Jesus. Nothing. So we're going to read our text, and then we're going to kind of dig in and get into it. Revelation 3, starting in verse 1, says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, in the introduction, we, we see Jesus kind of telling you know, us who he is again. The, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, the, the seven stars have already been defined for us at the end of chapter one, so we don't have to guess about that. Uh, they are the messengers or the angels of the churches. And, and again, there's a lot of directions you can go with that. We've talked about it already, so study it out, have fun. I'm not gonna get into that. The seven spirits of God are a little harder. Uh, they're also mentioned in chapter one in the greeting of this book. And in this greeting, it almost appears that what we're, what we're seeing is that we're being greeted by the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See if you track with this. If you look at chapter one and verses four and five, it says, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from, so here's the, who it's coming from. First is him who is and who was and who is to come, the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Most commentators believe that the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the number seven is just, again, speaking of his completeness, his perfection, his, um, his fullness. And so what we see in this introduction is Jesus is emphasizing the close relationship that exists between himself, the Holy Spirit, and the church. I think that we all kind of know that a church that, that doesn't have the, the presence of God's spirit is a dead church. And that's what we see in Sardis. Jesus also claims in this introduction, his omniscience, which means he knows everything at once. He knows all because he says, I know your works. And, and that means he, he wants them to know that he sees everything that they do. He, he knows what they think. He knows what they teach. He knows how they behave, how they treat people, what their motives are, their secrets, all of it. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And we would do well as church members, people of, of God, to think about that a lot, to really dwell on the fact that not only does he know everything, but he cares a lot about it as well. And church leaders should especially think about this a lot. So that's the very short introduction, and, and the next we're going to kind of see the indictment, the things he has against the church. He mentions three things he has a problem with, and the first one is kind of this hypocritical, inauthentic image this church has. The second one is their incomplete works, and the third one is their, the ESV says, soiled garments. The third grader in me wants to giggle every time I say that, so polluted clothes, uh, sullied you know, attire, I don't know what you want to say, but that's, what it, that's how it says it, so I'll try not to giggle and be immature. It's just kind of funny, I'm sorry. Uh, so he starts out by telling them they have a reputation. 
churches have reputations, right? If I were to ask you guys about any of the, the well-known churches in the area, you would, you would know something about each of them. Oh, that's the church that, you know, oh, those guys are the, you know something about each of the churches, right? Well, Sardis had a reputation for being alive. That means the people in the community thought of this church as being this thriving church, full of activity and busyness. There was a lot going on, and, and that's what they were known for. But Jesus disagrees. He says, nah, there's no life there. This church is flatlined, and you're going to have a really difficult time finding a pulse in this place. And that tells us that a church can have a reputation that isn't based in reality at all. The church had fooled the town, and they'd fooled themselves into thinking that they were alive. You know the old saying, you can, you can fool all of the people some of the time, and you can fool some of the people all of the time, but you can fool God None of the time. That's not how the saying goes, but that's true. And it's pretty sobering to know that this was a dead church whose lampstand was about to be removed, and they had no idea. God's about to turn the lights on. It sounds like Jesus has already left the building, and they're just going about business as usual. They're just having church. Week in, week out. That's, it's kind of it's sad to think that you can get to that point and not know it. So this tells us that a church can be full of activity and have absolutely no purpose or usefulness for the kingdom of God. And that's what this church had, begun, had become. They were just kind of going through the motions. They were a church that was just pretending. Now, interestingly, the city of Sardis had the same reputation as this church did. Um, and no doubt Jesus assumed this wouldn't be lost on them. Because Sardis was once a thriving city. They were considered the pride of Asia. And everyone seemed to know that, that they were no longer that, I should say, but them. Everybody was aware that that wasn't the case anymore, but they still thought that way. Uh, they even had a, a, there was a competition between Smyrna and Sardis to see who would get the next big Roman temple built. And they had to go and candidate and tell, tell, you know, go before a board, I imagine, and explain why our city deserves to have this temple. And all Sardis could do was talk about the glorious past. That's what they went in with. This is who we've been for all these years ago. This is who we were. Smyrna came in and said, man, this is who we are now. Look at how much we're thriving right now and look at the future and what it holds for us. Guess who got the temple? <laughs> yeah, Smyrna. Sardis got left out of it. So they're still acting like a thriving city, but they hadn't been for a long time. And they were basing their identity on what once was, not on current affairs. I think experts refer to this as Uncle Rico syndrome, if you're not familiar with that. This is where you just think about the glory days and how wonderful it was. And, oh, if I could only go back to, to that time when it was so great, you're just kind of living in the past. I want to ask you, do you think God cares more about a past fruitfulness or a present one? present one, of course. And I couldn't help but think about the American church as I studied this section, because the church in America also has a reputation. If you were to ask most Christians in our country if the church in America was alive and well, I think a lot of them would say, yeah, you know, they might not like us, they might hate the church. And, and you also have to think about everything that is under the banner of church. You know, there's a lot that's under that banner. Everything from, you know, guys picketing, you know, uh, military funerals to, I mean, it, it covers a lot of ground, unfortunately. But if you were to ask, are, is the church alive and well? I think most people would say, yeah, they're, they're still going strong. So we have this reputation of being alive. Do you remember the statistics even just a few years back when they would ask how many people in America were Christians? Remember how high they were? 
And we're talking close to 80% of the country said they were Christians. Think about that for a minute. Do Do eight out of 10 people that you meet just love and follow Jesus? Does that seem even remotely possible? No. We, we know that these stats mean that most people who call themselves Christians probably are not. That means that most people, if you, if you just think of these stats, are going to be part of that crowd that stands before Jesus one day saying, Lord, you know me. We're, we're, we're like this, you and me. You, you, remember all the cool, great stuff I've done for you? You, you know me. And what does Jesus say back? You don't, you don't look familiar to me at all. I don't, hmm, are you sure? Have we met? I don't think we've met. I don't know you. That's terrifying to think that perhaps eight out of ten people think that they're going to be welcomed. You know, Jesus is going to be like, oh, give, you know, and, and he's going to say, oh, I, don't, I don't know you. We're, you're a stranger. They say they're the real thing, but there's no life there. And unfortunately, this describes far too many people that claim to be Christians. If you're attached to the root, fruit happens. That's the reality of the Christian life. So as we consider this letter, it's probably important for us to kind of get the mirror out and and look at our own church and think about what reputation we have as a church. And, And I hope that we have a reputation as a church for being genuine, and, and real. Uh, I think we, we live in a time when everything around us is so fake and so contrived and so plastic and people are tired of it. They, they, they want something that is authentic. And I, one of the things that I hear a lot when people come in here is they know that we're a church that we're, we seem to be a, a real genuine place. People can be themselves here. They don't have to pretend like something else. And that, that's good. I hope that that's something that describes our church. I think we're also a church that gladly welcomes anyone and everyone, even sinners, right? Even, even those guys. And of course, that includes all of us. But, but churches don't act that way very often. You know, they want, they want some people to come in, but not, not everyone. Just let's get the, you know, the beautiful people, the respectable ones. Let's get them in. Those other people can go find another church. We're not like that. We want everyone to come in. And I also hope that we're a church that loves and serves people in our community in a meaningful way and and that we're known as a giving and a caring church. We have ministries like the free food market where we give away food and the warming center where homeless people can come. And those kinds of things are important. And even though everything I just mentioned is very, they're great things, great things to be known for, It can't stop there if we want our works to be complete in the sight of God. That describes a lot of churches, just what I've mentioned. We must also have a reputation, though, for being a church that continually magnifies the person and work of Jesus. That that a place that sinners can come and hear something that will save them. (laughs) And that we're, we're a church that's diligent to tell other people about this. We must also be a church that's committed to proclaiming all of God's word, not just the the parts we like, but all of it, and that holds fast to everything that God's word teaches, even if that means that we aren't popular with the the world around us. You know, and that's that's the weird rub of this. You know, the first part of that reputation stuff I talked about are things the community's going to like, 
The second part are, are things that people are going to find offensive, and, and a church kind of needs to have that reputation. Both of those things need to be true so that they're going to say, man, I, I really like the stuff they do. They're loving, they're caring, but man, they're sure just, you know, closed-minded when it comes to this Jesus guy. <laughs> That's kind of what we, we're going to be like. A church with, um, well, let me say this. One of the things that we learned from this letter, it's kind of not stated clearly, but it's there if you, if you look for it. So it's implicit, not explicit, is that the church in Sardis wasn't offending anybody. <laughs> okay, there, you, you notice when you read this letter, there's no enemy mentioned. Like in the other churches, they would say, you know, Satan is coming against this church. The Romans are coming against this church. The Jews are coming against this church. Who's coming against Sardis? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody at all. Nobody seemed to have a problem with them. And what does that tell you? It tells you that there was no reason for an enemy to come against this church, right? They weren't bothering anybody. They weren't making a stand against false teaching. They weren't making any kind of stands against immorality or the, or the way the culture was living. And they weren't being exclusive about their beliefs. They were the perfect example of inoffensive Christianity which isn't Christianity at all. <laughs> because the message of the gospel, if preached honestly, is offensive. <laughs> if, you, if I tell you, you are a sinner desperately in need of God's forgiveness, and the only way for you to get that is by bowing your knee to Jesus Christ, that's not something that's gonna win you friends in the world. <laughs> They're gonna hear you say that and be like, you know, they don't like that. They don't wanna hear that especially a place like Sardis, because Sardis was known for worshiping just about anything and everything. That was a big part of their culture. In fact, when you go and, you know, you dig up these ruins, places like Sardis, places like Ephesus, in Ephesus specifically, there was over 30 temples to different gods that, that they found. That's a lot. And Sardis would have certainly worshipped all these, these same gods. The city also had one of the largest Jewish synagogues. So you've got all these temples to these gods. You've got this huge Jewish synagogue. And then you've got the Christians there as well. And they all seem to be just, you know, one big happy family. If you went into the marketplace, you would see a booth that has crosses on it next to a booth that has Jewish symbols on it next to a booth that has Roman symbols on it. They're all together in the marketplace just having a great time together. That's kind of what Sardis was like. It was a pluralistic society, and as long as you didn't elevate your religion or your belief system over anybody else's, everybody's great, right? You can have your truth and your beliefs. I can have mine. That's kind of what our culture has become like now. If you haven't noticed, that's, that's what America kind of looks like. And as long as, you know, you don't become, you know, inclusive, or as long as you stay inclusive, I should say, and as long as you remain tolerant, and as long as you're willing to accept and even agree with everybody else, we're not going to have any troubles. But the minute you do, the minute you make your God or your beliefs exclusive or um, greater than somebody else's, you're in big trouble. Can't have that. And that's exactly what Christianity does. See, this is the problem. Christianity says that it's the truth, the way, the life. There's not a lot of room for, you know, anything else in those statements. Not, not one truth of many truths, not one way of many ways, not one life that you can possibly live. The 
is very specific. And so for the Christian, this means that we're going to have to make a decision. Do I blend in, just kind of go along with everybody else, don't make a stir, compromise, don't offend? Those are the big, those are the big things. Or do I, do I stay faithful to Christ, even if that puts me on the outside and maybe even puts me in danger? Sardis made a choice. Their choice was to compromise and to not offend. And it was a death sentence to that church. The church became completely irrelevant and, and, and was useless. And so that brings us to Jesus' second indictment against them. He says their works were not complete in the sight of God. So if you, if you would have looked at their report card, it would have said assignments incomplete, late, missing. I used to get that on mine a lot. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying to them. Uh, we know that this church looked alive, and now we know that they also were doing good works. But somehow these works fell short. And I thought about like, well, what would make the works of a church inadequate or unfinished? Well, what, what should works do is the question. They should glorify God, and they should validate the reality that Jesus is alive and in our midst. That's what our works should do. Their works um, hadn't been brought to completion in Sardis because they didn't close the loop back to Christ. Does that make sense? It's kind of like all the churches today that are doing good things for their communities um, without ever connecting the dots back to Jesus as the reason why. So if our works don't glorify God, if they don't shine the spotlight on Jesus, who are they glorifying? And I can look at so many churches right now that are doing all these good things, but, but I don't see the spotlight ever on Jesus. So this is kind of like building a bridge that makes it halfway across the river. It's, like, it's not real helpful, is it? What are you going to do with that? Not a whole lot. It's incomplete. In Sardis, they weren't... Uh, doing anything that, that upset anybody. They were doing lots of good works. That was nice. But, but we, we, we know that there's no way they could have been preaching the gospel because if they weren't offending anybody, they weren't preaching the gospel. That made their works incomplete. And Jesus clearly isn't okay with this. God's works are important in the church. The things that we do for the community, they matter greatly. They're, they're good things to be doing. Don't misunderstand that. But if they don't point people to the reality of Jesus in our lives and the need for him in their lives, what are we doing with them? Why, why are we doing them? That's why we do them. Well, the last thing Jesus keys in on as a problem with this church is found in verse 4, where he points out that there are only a few in the church who have not stained their clothes or, you know, soiled their garments. And so what this tells us is that there's only a few, that, that means the rest of the church had. So you've got a, a few that are wearing white clothes, and most of them that aren't. That, that could mean that there were only a few Christians there. It could mean that there were a lot of Christians that had compromised and, and kind of gotten into the world. Jesus doesn't want people claiming to be his followers, claiming to be clothed in righteousness, and then walking around with filthy garments. Makes sense, right? Especially when you think of us as the bride of Christ. Kind of really brings out the picture then. Picture a bride coming in, just, you know, like she's just been rolling around in the dirt. Doesn't, doesn't paint a pretty picture, does it? it? It doesn't make sense when you see this, by the way. It, it would be like somebody who just says, you know, I am a diehard Ducks fan, 
but every time you see them, they're just wearing beaver attire. At some point, wouldn't you kind of say, look, something's not adding up here. I'm not, I'm not sure about this exactly, but you're claiming that you've been washed by the blood of the lamb, but your garments are always really filthy. What's that about? <laughs> the church in Sardis didn't look any different than anyone else around them. They didn't stand out. A Christian who has been clothed in, in the righteousness of Christ, who is, who is clothed in white, should stand out like a sore thumb. James even says that, you know, are, are we never going to, you know, get, get smudges on us? Are we never going to? No, we're, we're not perfect in that sense. I mean, positionally we are, but practically, if we're in the world, we're going to get some stains on us. And that's why James says, do your best to keep yourself unstained from the world. So we are, it doesn't mean we avoid people. You know, if you stay up in a hill somewhere, you know, like a monk, you can make sure that you stay white. Well, kind of. <laughs> I would find a way to do something, I'm sure, but, but that's the idea. It's not, this isn't saying keep away from the world. That's not an option for us. It's just saying don't, don't become like them. Don't spend so much time there that, that you become indistinguishable from them. The more time we spend with God and his people, the, the, the less that will happen. If your desire is to win the approval of the world, you can expect your garments to get real dirty real quick. If your desire is to glorify and please your Savior, you're going to want to keep your garments pristine. So those are the indictments. And now we come to the instructions. There is hope for this church if they will heed his warnings and follow his instructions. So the first thing that Jesus tells them to do is wake up. It's a, good, it's a good call to hear, right? Wake up. This is meant to be like a, a bucket of cold water, you know, assaulting a person that's passed out. I picture old westerns, you know, that you'd always, you'd always have to go get the cowboy to go save the day, but he was always drunk, and so you had to get a big bucket of cold water and splash it on him, and then he'd wake up. Wake up! Praise God for his merciful wake-up calls and for the opportunity they give us to turn to him. You know, um, it's funny how when you're preparing a sermon, God brings real-life illustrations into your life any given week. Uh, I, I got a wake-up call this week. I found out that I've got a problem with my heart. I've got a valve that's not working. I don't know what it means yet. Um, I go in Thursday and meet with a cardiologist to find out more. But um, I didn't have a real sense of urgency about my health a week ago. <laughs> Guess what I have now? a real sense of urgency. And I, and I imagine that this, this letter to this church might have felt that way to them as well. Because the logical question you ask after hearing something like this is, what do I do now? What do I need to do now? And Jesus is happy to tell them. First he says, strengthen what remains. Wake-up calls are intended to create desperation that leads to action. I can tell you that I've never been so motivated to make changes in my life. It's just, you know, I, I want to stop doing the things that I'm, are bad for me. I want to start doing the good th the things that are, I want to start eating vegetables, people. That's how bad it is right now. I want to stop eating bacon and start eating Brussels sprouts without bacon, because Brussels sprouts are better with bacon. I digress. I, I'm thinking about all of these things now that I need to do, and I wasn't before. I didn't, I wasn't serious about it before. Now, I know what'll happen if I don't, what could happen if I don't, and I'm, I'm awake. You know, within this church, 
there didn't seem like there was much to work with. There wasn't a lot there, but, but there's something. So, so you're telling me there's a chance. You know, that's what I'm hearing. It's like there, there's, there's something. Jesus tells them to do whatever's needed to fan, you know, fan that little ember back into flame. Uh, do whatever's necessary to nurse that sick heart back to health. And then he gives them the prescription that they need to accomplish it. He says, remember what you have received and heard. Uh, this is most certainly a reference to the gospel, the, the news about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And at some point that had been preached to them. Now we don't know if this is, if this is just telling them to, to remember it again or to like this was a seed that, that was thrown at them at one point and they kind of took that seed and they deposited it somewhere for safekeeping. I think a lot of people do that. Now hold on to that for maybe a later time. He's saying, hey, that thing that you received and heard, get that back out and look at it and think on it and dwell on it. That's the answer. He may be talking to Christians who have wandered off, who have, who, who, like the prodigal son, has been out in the pig slop. And, and he's saying, hey, hey guys, I'm calling you back. Remember what you have received and heard. As Christians, you know, this is such a beautiful thing. We never graduate from the gospel. There is never a point where the gospel becomes irrelevant to us. You know, today we're, we're going to take communion. Um, that's, that's what this is for. It's a, it's a visible reminder and a participatory reminder for us to, to know who Jesus is, what he's done for us, that it can be reappropriated again and again. I don't mean that you're re, being resaved. I mean that you're just, you know, you need every day to spend time at the cross. I need that so desperately because it, it's like that compass that, that points you back to true north. It reminds me that I'm a, I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner that needs his grace. When I spend time at the cross, I remember that. I remember um, who he is and what he's done for me, how much he loved me to do, you know, again, I just think of that, that you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's what time at the cross does for us. It, you're reminded of what you were saved from, what you were saved for, and what it cost God to provide it for you. That's like breath to your lungs. You know, it's like fuel for your soul. It does something. You never graduate from the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The next instruction that he gives to him is to, to keep it and repent. So receive what you heard, keep it and repent. This is again the gospel. Uh, the word keep is a military term that means to guard something so it can't get away. I just love that picture, you know, just guard this thing, stay, stay on top of it. He's telling them to hold fast to the gospel and turn away from everything else. Repentance involves a change of mind that results in a change of action. It, it isn't something you do once. I wish it were. I wish it was something that I did once and then I never had to do it again. But sometimes I'm, I just find myself spinning in circles, you know, oh, got to repent again. Got to, you know, it's something you have to keep doing. You have to keep turning away from the things that, that lead us away from Christ and keep turning back to him, keep running back to, to him. Well, what was it that they were supposed to repent of? The first thing was their hypocrisy. They were all image and no substance. They were all just 
not authentic in any way. And he wants them to be the real deal. He wants them to look alive because they are alive. Because they're attached to the vine and the Holy Spirit is fueling that church. He wants them also to repent of this desire they had to, to win the approval of men. Boy, this is hard to do. So we, we, we want people to like us. We want people to, to think well of us. I want the approval of men. I'm, I'm a people pleaser. By nature, that's, you know, that's one of my greatest strengths and one of my greatest weaknesses. He wants them to stop compromising and stop settling for this mediocre, inoffensive version of Christianity that they've settled for. They need to make a clear stand, even if it costs them everything. And he also wants them to repent from not making Jesus the star of the show. If there's ever a time when we stop doing that at this church, just go home. Don't come back. You know, I mean, tell us. I don't think it'll happen. Jesus is everything. We want to magnify him, what he's done every time we meet together. That's the only, you know, it's like, what, what do we have for you? Christ crucified for you. That's what we have for you. That's the best thing we got. And we're going to, you know, if you do something well, just, you know, keep doing it. That's what we've got. We have Jesus for you. So that's what they needed to get back to. And I love that he gives them this wake-up call and this opportunity to change. That is God's mercy. But he also gives them a warning of what will happen if they don't change. That is God's mercy. They're both God's mercy. So we read the warning in verse 3. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That warning would have had specific meaning to the people of Sardis, and it should have gotten their attention. Because the interesting thing is the city of Sardis was built on this mountain. It had cliffs all around it. It was kind of known to be impenetrable. You, you just couldn't couldn't get into Sardis, if you, you know, unless you were invited. That was the, they even had a well-known proverb. You know how we say like something like, uh, if something's impossible, we talk about it, you know, well, it's just like, say, it'll be like breaking into Fort Knox. You know, it's completely safe. You can't do that. Well, they had this, a similar saying, you might as well try to capture Sardis. That's what they were known for. But oddly enough, there were two different occasions where their enemy was able to kind of stealthily find a way in, catch them off guard, and conquer them. It's already happened twice. They know this. And, and Jesus is saying, don't, don't let the third time be a charm because I, I can do it too. You, you know, thinking that you're untouchable leads to complacency. And, and even as I thought about this in my own life this week, I thought, man, I'm, I've done that. I, you know, I'm, I've lived a pretty good life. You know, I've lived in Coeur d'Alene in Central Oregon. It's like, man, how rough is that? I've, I've had everything I've always needed. I've been, you know, living in this wonderful country. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, it's so easy to get complacent. And when you get complacent, you start thinking, nothing can touch me. It's weird how we do that. I'm, I, don't, I can just keep going like I'm going. I don't have to really think about things. And then you get a wake-up call. It's like, I need to pay attention. I, I don't know how long I've got. I don't know what this life holds, but my, I want to make this matter. I want to use the, the most of the time God's given me. This warning by Jesus is just unmistakable. You may think you're safe. You may think you can ignore me. You may think you can relax and take it easy, but you would be wrong. For those who ignore him, he says, he will come against them 
like a thief at an hour they do not expect. Does that terrify you to hear that? I mean, Jesus saying, I'm going to come against you. That sounds terrifying to me. I mean, I, I know him, so I'm not terrified. But that, that thought of that idea of Jesus is coming for me <laughs> doesn't sound good. Now, this could refer to Jesus coming in judgment against churches who behave this way and just shutting down that church. I think that's the kind of the, the, the you know, that makes the most sense in this context. But, but it could also be referring to his second coming, the day of the Lord, when he comes to judge. And, and either way, it doesn't sound good for those who don't heed his warning. You know, heed the warning. That's the big point. I'm really glad that Jesus cares about his churches and, and he cares about how we represent him. That matters to him. It makes sense that it would, but, but think about that. The way that we conduct ourselves matters to Jesus. It reflects on him. And I'm also glad that he offers a window of time for us to, to repent when he makes something like this known. Now, of course, the question is, will they repent? And if you go to Sardis today, you find ruins. The closest town is a town called Sart, and there's, there's no Christians there that we can see. There's no church there. But the good news is that God has always had a remnant of people who will overcome. We see this all throughout the Bible, even when things look the darkest and it seems like all hope is lost, God has a remnant. God has those that remain. I couldn't help but thinking of the prophet Elijah. You remember when he, um, all the, the enemies were coming against him, you know, Jezebel, Baal, all these prophets were coming against him. And at one point he says to the Lord, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. You can almost hear him saying to God, it's like, if they kill me, you're in big trouble. I'm the last one, God. You know, what happens if I go? Then what are you going to do? And I love the Lord's answer. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there remains a remnant chosen by grace. God will not fail. The church will not fail. His plan and his purpose will not fail, even at times when it doesn't seem that way. And he reminds his church of this in verse 4 when he says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then he says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So we see that remnant there. He's got it. You know, and then I, when it talks about overcoming, I have to make a confession to you. When I've gone through the book of Revelation, even now, years ago when we went through it, I would always read these words like, you know, the one that overcomes, the one who's victorious, to the conqueror. And I've always thought, hmm, I'm kind of the opposite of that. I don't like that because I, like, I, I wouldn't ever describe myself as, a, as an overcomer or a, a victor or a conqueror. I don't, I, I'm, I, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Have you ever felt that way? you read this? Like, if, if it's up to me to be an overcomer, I'm in trouble. Do <laughs> you know what makes you an overcomer? Jesus does. Jesus does that. If he has caused you to be born again, you will persevere till the end. It's such good news to me. It says it this way in 1 John chapter 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's what makes you an overcomer. Because I have trusted in Jesus' substitutionary life, 
death and resurrection for me, he has made me an overcomer. Yeah. And Jesus wants to make sure that the few Christians in Sardis know these things also. He gives them three assurances as we, as we close. I want you to, to, to take hold of these. The first assurance Jesus gives them is that they will walk with him in white garments for they are worthy. This is just awesome. It paints a, a picture of a king coming back from battle and all of his loyal subjects are there in white to, to be a part of that processional parade. So spoiler alert, we win in the end. That's what this, that's what this is getting at. At the end, woohoo, we are going to win. These white robes are also symbolic of the righteousness of Christ that we are clothed in. That's what makes you worthy. It's not your righteousness, it's his righteousness. The next assurance he gives to those is that he will never blot their name out of the book of life. It's funny how many people try to use this verse to teach that a person can lose their salvation. This is not a warning. This is meant to be an encouragement of security, a promise of security to those who are his. He doesn't say that a person's name can or will be erased. He assures them that it won't. That's what he's saying here. He's saying no matter, no matter what, if you're mine, you don't have to worry about that ever happening. And I'm the kind of guy that would, because if I could get my name blotted out of the book of life, I'd do it. I would have done it already three or four times today probably. It's like, oh, what, oh no, he's out. Okay, he's back in. Oh, no, he's out. You know, I mean, that's, that's what my day would be like, and it, it would be horrible. The reason I know that this isn't um, teaching that is because of what Jesus says in John chapter 6. Starting in verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's a good one. That's a fridge verse. Jesus says that the Father's will is that he doesn't lose anyone. How many times did Jesus fail to accomplish the Father's will? (laughs) Never. In fact, if he would have, we'd have a real problem. He does not fail to accomplish the will. He accomplishes it perfectly. And that means my name will never be blotted out of his book. The last assurance that he gives, and I love this one, is that he will confess our name before his father and before the angels. You know how cool this is? I mean, think about who you are for a second. Think about, you know, I just picture that. He's not going to be ashamed to associate with me. It's just so, it's so astonishing. This is the exact opposite of I never knew you. <laughs> it's what it is. He's going to be like, you know, I, the, oh, that's Brent. He's with me. I know him. He's good. That's just, whew, thank you, Father, that you've done this. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is good stuff, Christian. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Confess that he is your Lord. Believe that Christ raised him from the dead. And this is what we get to do now in communion is, is affirm that. We get to affirm that Jesus, his body was broken when yours should have been and his blood was shed when yours should have been and he's satisfied 
his Father, in every way on your behalf, if you'll trust in that. That's what communion is. It's just, a, it's just the gospel right there for us to enjoy and to remember and to worship him for. So, Father, we're, we're grateful um, that in regards to salvation, uh, all we brought to the party was our sin, and you took care of everything else, and that we, if we just believe um, in, in your Son for our salvation, we can live, and we can have a relationship with you, and we can have these assurances of what's to come. So thank you, Father, that uh, your plan and your purpose is perfect, that it will prevail. Thank you for sending your son to the cross. Lord, as we take communion now, help us to worship you. This table is for believers, for those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior, who have confessed that you've raised him from the dead, Lord. If there's anybody here now that has never done that, I pray that they would do it right this minute and enjoy communion with you. Amen.